Hello there, and welcome to SITREP. SITREP, your Defence and Global Affairs Roundtable discussion from BFBS Radio 2. I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are very welcome. Now, the first seven days, an ominous start to the year. Why Yemen is such a bear trap for the United Kingdom and the United States. Why intelligence analysis screws up, to quote Mr President Obama. And can Tony Blair really get a fair trial? And is it a trial? Why the United Kingdom has got a bad case of religion and why radicals are in rehab? And are we in 2010 or 2010 or 2010? And who cares anyway other than the pedants? And does the brain know how time moves on? That's all in the next 60 seconds. Well, with me from the, uh, from, uh, the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at the University of Salford, I will have got that wrong, Professor Eric Grove. It's international, but never mind, I'll forgive you. I'm now forgiven by a professor. <laughs> uh, the senior correspondent of Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, who's never forgiven anybody in his life. And on the line, and we forgive him because he's snowbound in Kent, Hajir Tamorian of the Limehouse Group of Analysts. Now, just seven days, as I say, into 2010. We like 2010, by the way, as opposed to 2010. Or do we? Stay with us and find out why at the end of the programme. Anyway, just seven days into the year, and it's pretty steamy stuff. And we don't mean the uncut sex from Avatar. Here's Jamie Gordon. In Afghanistan, the new year got off to the worst possible start, with the first British casualty of 2010 after the death of Private Robert Hayes of the 1st Battalion, the Royal Anglian Regiment. Private Hayes became the 246th British soldier to be killed in the conflict. As repatriations continued to RAF Lynham, there was widespread revulsion at the idea from Islam for UK to march through the town of Wooden Bassett carrying empty coffins to symbolise Muslim casualties of the war in Afghanistan. The Home Secretary Alan Johnson said he would ban the march if advised to do so by the police, and Prime Minister Gordon Brown expressed his disgust at the proposal. I don't think there's anybody I know in the country who wishes uh, to turn Wooden Bassett and what happens there into an undignified political event led by one or two people who've got malicious reasons for doing so. And I think we should be very clear that it's not acceptable. It would be disgusting and, and offensive. And Jem Chowdhury of Islam for UK said he chose the town to attract publicity. If I were to hold it somewhere else, it would not have the media attention that it has now. And um, if I'm to balance between the sensitivity of having it in Wooden Bassett, and uh, the possibility of continuing in the quagmire and the cycle of death in Afghanistan, then quite honestly, I'm going to balance in favour of the latter. The political fallout from the alleged attempt to blow an American airliner out of the sky en route to Detroit continued. It turned out the suspect was known to the US security services, and Downing Street issued a statement insisting the suspect was radicalised in Yemen after he had left the UK in October 2008, and that the information had been shared with US security services. President Barack Obama was clearly not happy. This was not a failure to collect intelligence. It was a failure to integrate and understand the intelligence that we already had. The information was there. Agencies and analysts who needed it had access to it. And our professionals were trained to look for it and to bring it all together. Now, I will accept that intelligence by its nature is imperfect. But it is increasingly clear that intelligence was not fully analyzed or fully leveraged. That's not acceptable, and I will not tolerate it. Meanwhile, following the murder of seven US CIA operatives at Camp Chapman in Afghanistan, Major General Michael Flynn, the Deputy Chief of US Military Intelligence, delivered a stinging rebuke on the American spying mission in the country. Jamie Gordon, reporting for CITREP. 
Jamie Gordon, thank you very much indeed. Uh, more body bags from Afghanistan, intelligence failure, a third battleground, Yemen. More predictions of economic crash, balloting for a seat at the Blair Witch trial. And in the UK, a hopelessly boring general election campaign has started. There's no political bias there at all. Pick something that we should be following and maybe even follow up this time next year. Hajir Tamorian, it is, a, it is, as I said, a, a pretty much a steamy start in the first seven days of uh, 2010, isn't it? I'm afraid, yes. I think the, the, the repercussions of that uh, Christmas Day attempted bombing of an uh, airline, an American airline over Detroit, uh, is still with us. And, uh, of course, now we are thinking about Yemen, where apparently um, this uh, alleged bomber was trained before beforehand he was in london for s several years and we are thinking about these basic problems where do we go from here yeah what do, what do you, if you had to pick something uh Hajir, that we're going to be following and might even be following for the next 12 months any ideas i'm afraid of course i i think we are going to be uh, preoccupied with afghanistan because the main battle will still be there iraq will be quieter but we will be increasingly asking ourselves whether Yemen is going to be another failed state like Somalia, and of course it's next door to Somalia, opposite Somalia, across the Gulf of Aden, where that huge piracy problem has arisen over the past few years. Is Yemen going the same way and becoming a safe haven for al-Qaeda? Right. Uh, Christopher Walker, you have been, I suppose, you have been covering the first seven days of every year for a long time as a newspaper man. Uh, there are not many seven days that so much has happened. No, but it all seems to take people by surprise. I mean, you had Ceausescu in Romania. That was uh, in the first seven days. Um, but these are... The I think death the, of Ceausescu. The death of yes. Ceausescu. The revolution. Yes, the revolution. The revolution. But I think the importance of these seven days is that they are, as you say, things that are going to linger on. Yemen, I quite agree with Hajir. We haven't yet mentioned Iran where uh, there's great attention to that nuclear capability. Um, we haven't also mentioned the fact that there's bound to be more of these terror attacks. Um, the, the display put out by American intelligence made the Bay of Pigs in 1961 uh, look rather successful, and that was, of course, when they right, raided... CIA cock -up. CIA ordered a raid of uh, Cuba. The date was broadcast on Radio Moscow four days before, so when uh, these Cuban exiles landed, somebody was waiting for them. Uh, but I'm glad to see on that occasion the boss of the CIA, Dulles, uh, had the decency to resign, whereas it seems Obama's not even going to sack any of these gentlemen, and one of them stayed on the ski slopes uh, during... Uh, Best place yeah, for him, I tell you. <laughs> but Dolius also was the only person who didn't listen to Radio, Radio Moscow, otherwise they'd have figured that out for themselves. <laughs> um, tell me, um, Eric Grove, Yes. it is a mucky seven days, um, but Christopher says, well, we know we shouldn't be surprised. I'm sort of surprised that we just... Well, I think that, you know, we have Christmas and then the world kind of stops. And then suddenly, well, we have Christmas, not well, the, the, the rest of the world. <laughs> we stop. The West, well, no, no, the, but no, we in the sense of the Western world, the United yeah, States yeah. and Western Europe. And we tend to stop for some days, increasing number as time goes by. And then suddenly the world reappears. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and yeah. events happen again. And we suddenly realise there are enormous problems in various parts of the world. Yes, it, yeah. it, ha it has been eventful, but I suppose as we're interested in this kind of thing, we, we shouldn't knock that too much. I want to no, talk... Um, exactly. um, you've both been talking well, you and Hajir have been talking about Yemen. Yeah, uh, Hajir, I'll come to you in a moment and let's go through the background of this. But um, yesterday, 
in uh, Yemen. The security forces there, the Yemeni security forces, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but such as they are, arrested three suspected al-Qaeda militants from a cell that the United States has said, and do we... You know, do we think they know anything anymore? The United States has said that they were linked to a plot against the American uh, and other embassies uh, in Sa'ana. Yes. <sighs> Christopher, um, the Yemen's government has increasingly claimed success against al-Qaeda. Uh, is this... Are we likely to believe it? No, because the last figure we heard was that uh, it only uh, claimed and was able to control 37% of the country. So it makes even, even President Karzai in Afghanistan look to say he's got his country unified. There's a civil war going on at one end of Yemen, and there's a war of secession going on at the other end. At in the, the southern end. Yeah, uh, southern end, yeah. which was one, uh, once the Marxist uh, state until 1990. Which upset the Saudis. Yes. And I think but and the important thing is we say al-Qaeda it's become a bit of a sort of catch-all phrase and we don't even know it but in Yemen we know it's true because about 12 months ago al-Qaeda in the Saudi Arabia and al-Qaeda in Yemen linked um, formally rather like a merger between two companies and made al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula so this is not an invented sort of no, acronym which I have to tell I have to tell our, our listener uh, that we here on SIPREP in April last year, identified Yemen as the next battleground. And we kept on going at it. And suddenly, over Christmas, people had discovered maybe the Postal Service. Eric, um, I wonder if we've got here um, a case of the Americans. Everybody's fearing the Americans are now... Well, they are in, in Yemen. We and have been for a long time. Ooh. Yeah, well, certainly since April last year. When we no, and before, and before. I mean, I mean, throughout the noughties, if you want to if you want to call them that, Americans have been in Aden. Hang on, uh, hang on, what are, what are the noughties? The years between 2000 and 2009, so they are called. Yeah. But that's now a, this in is, the teenies. This is the Jim noughties. Yes, or whatever, or whatever. <laughs> and of course, and, and remember, Aden was a base for two of the, uh, perhaps the only major acts of maritime, t- of, of maritime terrorism that have taken place. The attack on the USS Cole, mm. an American mm. destroyer in the harbour died by suicide bombers, and also the attack on the French tanker Limburg as it entered Aden Harbour. Mm. Ever since then, the Americans have been there. They've been doing it very sensibly, mm. covertly, so as not to create problems mm. for the, um, for the Aden, uh, oh, so, sorry, takes me back for the Yemeni administration. President Saleh, mm. but there are lots of other problems. For example, Isn't that reminiscent of slightly what happened in Vietnam? They started as advisors. Yes, but they've kept mm. it low level, which right. is I good. I want to have a word with uh, Hajir about this, because I know he's been doing quite a study on it. I mean, is it, there are a couple of points, Hajir, um, that immediately sort of um, I, I wonder about. The American presence and the American interest, direct and public interest, yes. that could somehow weaken President uh, Salah, could this, it not? This is being said locally. Uh, and uh, What, in, in, in Yemen? In Yemen itself. More importantly, it's being said actually, despite the pretense, pretenses of President Saleh, uh, Al-Qaeda is not one of his preoccupations. As no. Chris said earlier, he is facing a um, rebellion by the Shiites of the north uh, with which uh, Saudi Arabia is cooperating. And in the south, he's uh, facing a major separatist movement in the southern Yemenis and uh, then he has got huge other problems for example this is a country whose um, uh, whose standard of living is very very low for example their um, uh, average per capita income is $950 a year alone and um, uh, the population of 23 million is 
rising faster than any other place in the Middle East, and that's quite something to say. And he's so, got a bit of oil, but that's running out, isn't it? That's, that's running out, unfortunately, and uh, um, a lot of the <laughs> little arable land that is there is being devoted to the growing of at and a narcotic. Mm-hmm. So this country is really in many ways already a failed state, even though we don't call it a failed Actually, state. Actually, there's another side of this, isn't there? That, that, um, is that President Salah, um, he, he, he gives the Obama administration a sort of an, an Afghanistan-Pakistan problem all over again. I mean, he likes the American support, but he's ineffective and he's got a corrupt bureaucracy and he, he's got a different way of doing things. Yeah. And having been there for 30 odd years, it seems it works. And I think I'm, I'm afraid he's going to use uh, Al-Qaeda's presence, which is real there, as, as, a, as a blackmail um, device against uh, the West. For example, we are in London going to have soon a conference uh, with Britain and America. 28th um, of January. Yeah, that's yeah. right. About giving more money to create more jobs. As I said, you cannot create enough jobs in, in Yemen because the population is riding so fast and there is such a huge popul- proportion of unemployed, unemployable young men, actually. Tell me, uh, Hashim, let's put this in a further context, and that's the thing that interests us most, <laughs> Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, which has been uh, the, the so-called foreigners of al-Qaeda, i.e. the, the non-locals, um, yes. Egyptians and Saudis, yes, uh, they haven't had a good time, have they? <laughs> you, you're referring to some of these foreigners, for example, idealists who go there to be trained yes. by... Yes, they arrive there, and the, the first thing that occurs to the mind of the local al-Qaeda is that these are Western spies. Because a lot of them from Germany, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's isolate them and put them into some stables um, <laughs> to see what we can do with them. And in fact, one group of them recently <laughs> fled back to Germany... <laughs> But nevertheless, people are dying as a result of them being there. Yes, unfortunately. And, and this, but it, uh, is it, can, can I come back to this point about the Egyptians and the Saudis yes. uh, there? Um, they have not been that successful. It, it just struck me that a lot of the Yemenis trained people, and perhaps even Yemenis, are replacing them. Yes, this uh, applies particularly to the main body of al-Qaeda, which is, by the way, making a comeback, organizational comeback somehow. And the number three now in Al-Qaeda is a sheikh called Abu Yahya, who is becoming, even surpassing Zawahiri as the spiritual leader of Al-Qaeda. So Libyans and Yemenis in Afghanistan are now poised to take over the next generation of the senior leadership of Al-Qaeda. Tell me something about about the Yemenis uh, or Yemen. How much can America get involved there without it being necessary to have, uh, for example, uh, major operating bases, or cannot all be done from Saudi Arabia? You could say, you could say that the pre- government of President Saleh is so isolated already, suffering from bad governance, corruption, nepotism, etc., that um, an American presence there could not make things uh, worse. Uh, for for him and the Americans could say well we are going there to look after our own interests mm. by uh, using drones for example attacking al-Qaeda presence more effectively in the area not only there in Somalia as well so uh, I think I'm afraid in, in this particular point predicting the future is rather difficult it's anybody's guess okay um, who's going to try this one on about the intelligence Christopher Walker I mean President Obama 
gave his intelligent chiefs, and have you seen the number of them? Yes. I mean, there were 14 of them. <laughs> it's enough to set up a football team, isn't it? Yes. Um, he gave these 14 intelligent chiefs an absolute public fanging. I mean, basically said they had information on the, the guy, the Nigerian, who was supposed to have tried to blow up the American Airlines. They did nothing about it. What's yeah. going on? Well, they, I think they don't talk to each other. They're not uh, exactly. joined up government. We, not only did he say they've got information, like we know from the gentleman's father who got disillusioned mm. with him, that they certainly did have information. on I mean, he, uh, as it were, snitched on his son six months uh, before this happened. He was... Uh, these people just didn't put two and two together. That And he broke sort of all the rules that, uh, of airport security, mm. too. I mean, he paid the ticket in cash. And uh, this had no luggage, you know. You don't let a person <coughs> like that on a plane. I mean, if it doesn't have luggage, it doesn't need cash. <laughs> Listen, um, uh, Eric, uh, tomorrow, Friday, uh, President, o, President Obama, he says, I want to know how we screwed up so much and what are you going to do about it? And they'll come up with something. I mean, I can imagine the other Blair, Dennis Blair, the uh, Director of National Intelligence, he will be saying, yeah, we're going to fix it. I don't believe that, do you? Well, I think, you know, as you've just heard, I mean, the trouble with all American bureaucracies and intelligence organisations are bureaucracies is they always engage in Chinese warlordism against each other. They always see the other group as, 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 much, as much the enemy as the, as, the, as the real enemy, and they don't exchange information. What you need is the maximum transparency between intelligence organisations and get these coordinators, like the Director of National Intelligence and the Head of the National Counterterrorism Centre, to actually do what, what the they're supposed to do on the packet and actually get along and coordinate and get the information together. It is quite terrifying that such an obvious target as this Nigerian gentleman was allowed on board the aeroplane at all. OK, somebody once said to me that uh, warfare is the way of teaching Americans geography. Well, what we don't teach them is social geography, so they tend not to know who's doing what and why they might do it. They just have a sudden idea once they get... Because I tell you why I say that, because part of this whole intelligence failure is the inability to think or have the resources to think to some extent in, an, in another language. That language, of course, is religious belief. You've got to know that, haven't mm -hmm. you? Um, and now the British, with their established Church of England, the Americans with their high church-going percentages, you think they think they know about religion in society, but I'm not sure they do. I say all this because this week, on Monday, a new course for graduate students started at Birkbeck College, London. <laughs> it's called... Sorry, is that... Oh, sorry, I thought you'd overcome. Um, it's called Religion and Society and Politics, Britain and Ireland, 1801-2001. Um, what strikes me about the course is that it seems such an obvious idea of study, but it's not. Now, the course director is Dr. Sean Brady. He's on the line. I mean, Sean, given that British society today seems enormously aware, if not informed, about religion in society and politics, why has so little work been done on this? Hello, Chris. Um, yes, indeed, British Society Day is um, acutely aware of the issue of religion in society and politics. Um, but I think this awareness, well, this awareness is a very recent reaction to the uh, rise of religious fundamentalisms, both Islamic and Christian in Great Britain and elsewhere. Um, now, this contemporary shift from awareness of issues of class and then race in Great Britain in the post-war era to ones of increasing concerns around issues of religion in society and politics and sort of caught historians and sociologists um, on the hop, as it were. And the problem, really, for academics has been the, um, the intellectual and the secular focus of um, social history. 
Now, modern social history in Britain, which was started in the 1950s by the British Marxist Historians Group, by the name E.P. Thompson and Eric Bilbeck's Eric Hobsbawm, um, was one of the great intellectual achievements in Great Britain in the post-war era. Now, before this, history was about great men and great events, predominantly. Mm. But the ideological... Empire. Well, indeed, yes. Um, but the ideological focus on class consciousness and economics inherent in social history and also in sociology up until the 1990s um, meant that um, study of or the study of religion in the modern era was uh, was relegated. It was it was seen as to to, to not exist as a subject, and uh, religion ideologically was relegated to exclusively to the private sphere, and it was argued at the time, therefore not the business of the historian. Mm. Um, Now, there are two inherent problems with this. Um, First of all, it's highly debatable uh, whether in Great Britain uh, religion ever became private, given that we have a state religion. Um, Not many countries have. Sorry? Not many countries have state I religions. Think we, well, we are the only uh, Western uh, democracy to have a state religion. Mm. I think I think Great Britain and Iran um, have state religions in the in the contemporary world. Um, um, but also, more recent developments in social history, such as a focus upon gender and also questions of sexuality, the private sphere is the object of study for for those particular scholars. So, it's it, it, scholars have become aware much more recently of the, the need historically to, to mm. look at religion, as well as the, 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 the social need for, for uh, um, a, a better analysis of the place of religion in, in, in modern Britain. Can I just try, uh, finally, on this point, um, the current debate in the United Kingdom is largely about the place of Muslims in British society. Yeah. Now, this follows, or it, it, it goes along with the apparent decline in Christian worship, but there is a sense that the British, particularly for all their claims of fairness, can't comprehend the fundamental differences that lead or can lead, for example, to radicalization. Well, it's interesting that uh, we say that. Um, the concerns about the apparent decline of Christian worship existed in Britain in 1800 just as much as they did today. Yeah? And the, the history of the modern era since 1800 in Britain has been a continuous tension between an establishment that abhorred what is described as enthusiasms in religion, or politics for that matter, and also a grassroots that periodically threw up radical fundamentalisms in religious belief, whether it be evangelicals in the 1840s, Christian socialists in the 1880s, religiously inspired feminism in the 19th century, sexual purity campaigns inspired by religion before the First World War, and of course we mustn't forget the tensions in religions and politics and the fundamentalisms in Irish history mm. in, and, and the relationship between Ireland and Britain in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah? Um, and I think what is interesting yeah, about the contemporary supposed alienation between religious fundamentalism among young Muslims, yes, and, and society and the establishment is that we have a history of religious radicalism, yes, throughout the 19th, 20th and 21st century in Great Britain. Um, and religious radicals have always campaigned in the face of a general incomprehension of their zeal in modern Britain. Now, what I think is interesting about the religiously uh, radicalized among young British Muslims today is their adoption of long-standing um, British methods of radical protest, such as marches and demonstrations, to promote their, 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 their ideas. So paradoxically, um, 
this is an indication of inclusiveness. I think their parents would have been much more isolated, you know, and, and, and ghettoized, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, religious radicalism has always alarmed the authorities um, and um, the bulk of society in Great Britain. Um, and we must not forget that our you know, very recent history of sectarian terrorism in Ireland and the UK had a very strong religious basis to it. Um, now, many in Great Britain today may not comprehend the fundamental differences that can lead to radicalization, but the UK and Ireland has a considerable modern historical legacy to draw upon to begin to understand this. Right. Um, Sean Brady at Birkbeck, thank you very much indeed. Lots of thought, uh, perhaps even for an essay. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye, Chris. Goodbye. Um, incidentally, one of the uh, students on that course, because um, I was doing something with them, one of the students on that course, uh, February the 8th, is going off to uh, join the army. Well, he hopes as to. a padre? Or <laughs> a, uh, no, as a, uh, as a straight as a, soldier. A soldier, he is going off to, he's, he said, I said, where are you going? He said, RTR or the um, uh, Royal Anglers. He said, but uh, hmm. he said, I'm not sure. I said, there's a heck of a difference between being in you know, infantry and, and let's say, armoured. Ah, he said, we're going to lose all the main battle tanks, so he said, I think I might just go and, <laughs> go and join the infantry. <laughs> but it's interesting that this guy at this level... Mm. I mean, Sean Brady, I thought, was very clear about mm-hmm. the, this is quite a revolutionary sort of study. Yeah. Uh, this is the sort of guy, and I said to him, why are you going to the army? He said, I admire them. He said, there are so very few things now that I would admire and I'd want to be part of. But I that is a thinking kid. Around, That's coming around more, and I think, I hope they've got a sense of humour, because I certainly remember one of the things the army uh, used to say in the north of Ireland was, you know, the, the great thing was if there was a Muslim or a Jew, they used to say, yes, but is he a Protestant Muslim or yeah, a Catholic? Catholic that's right, which, which demonstrates the importance of religion in Ireland. Of course, because of that reason, the Irish Church was the, the, the Irish Anglican Church, which was the Church of Ireland, the state mm. church, was was disestablished. And I, you know, perhaps it's because I, I was an Episcopalian in Scotland. Scotland and England have different religions. Okay. <laughs> England is Anglican, Scotland is Presbyterian, yeah. and Wales has no established church at all because Lord George uh, disestablished it a century ago. Well, our Prime Minister is a son of the bands. Right, hang on, hang on, hang on. I want to get on because we've got to do some other things in a moment. Um, Hajir, um, uh, something that uh, was sort of almost left out of uh, the headlines because everything else that's going on. The Iranian government has issued through its intelligence bureau a list of 60 international bodies that the Iranians should not mix with because those bodies are trying to encourage opposition to the revolution. Why are we getting this list now? Well, the, the Iranian government is becoming increasingly irrational. Um, for example, it's now beginning to arrest uh, anyone with a foreign connection, even foreign Muslims, if they have been watching demonstrations in Tehran. So, um, yes, of course, all human rights organizations abroad are uh, enemies of the state, counter-revolutionaries, Western agents, etc., so it's one of those things it's doing, and it's doing a lot of other things. By the way, earlier we should have said also that Iran possibly is going to be in the forefront of our minds, as well as Pakistan, as yeah. we look into the new year. The other thing is, Hajir, that the, I mean, the people who have taken to the streets um, are against the government. They're not against the revolution, are they? Well, um, it's being said, and I read the... Uh, 
the sites, the uh, websites of the opposition, which are filtered inside the country, but outside the country you can still read them quite easily. Uh, unfortunately, Nokia, uh, the mobile phone company, have sold a very sophisticated system of filtering to the Iranian government that stops the opposition talking to the people. Right. But anyway, the government, the, uh, the Iranian uh, people themselves are saying that... Um, I'm afraid I lost the thread of my thought. What was that question, Christopher? Uh, it was the fact that the people that are on the, taken oh, yes, to the yes, streets are not right. necessarily against the revolution, they're only against the government. Well, this is what the uh, official opposition, or at least persecuted opposition, wants us to believe. But even within those sites that I read, I was referring to earlier, sometimes you come across very highly um, uh, subversive columns that are freely put together by the Green Movement themselves, uh, calling for the overthrow of the Ayatollah Khamenei, whose name has been a taboo, let alone to call for his uh, downfall. So the movement is gradually becoming much more radicalized, and it's now easily people on the streets sh sh shout in their demonstrations, not Islamic Republic, but an Iranian Republic. That's anathema to the regime. Okay, Hashir Tamarian, thank you very much indeed. Uh, listen, uh is it quick thought? We've got these two dates we've been talking about: the 28th of January, Afghanistan and uh, Yemen summit in London. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why London's taking the lead in this. Is it just election stuff, or is I, it? I think I think it's our prime minister trying to appear to be statesmanlike. He can't resist an opportunity. Well, maybe he is statesmanlike. Perhaps he is, and I think it, and I think one can. Uh, underestimate very much the importance of what he did to help stabilise the world economy in the last year. I think mm. historians will look back on Brown mm. much better than I suspect the electorate will in the next few months. Mm. Um, and, uh, and it is a good thing to do, but there is always, inevitably, a sort of political factor in this. Just to go back to mm. Iran for one moment, though, I have an, an awful fear I've been getting in the last few weeks is, given all these problems and the increasing difficulties the regime in Iran is getting into, it might actually appreciate being attacked by, by the West because it would help bring Iranian national together yeah. and, 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 and solve some of its internal problems, at least temporarily. A very dangerous thought. That's a very opinion. Machiavellian um, Well, that's how I, th I think. Well, they've drawn up this list of 68 figures. Because leading the list, of course, is the Farsi service of the BBC, mm. which has only been running fairly a few months, and that really drives them mad. Because, uh, and that's why the British now, uh, in many ways, regarded as a bigger enemy than the United States. Yeah. And that's what they said during the revolution. Remember, they said British agents had yes. arrived in Tehran and stirred it up. Yeah. It's because this BBC Farsi service is so all-pervasive and can be understood. You know, when it was uh, in English, it didn't, uh, or even Arabic, it didn't have the same uh, resonance. And that's why they've drawn up the others on the list, you know. That's number one. The rest, like the hip parade, get a bit tatty down the bottom. But uh, <coughs> it's nevertheless fascinating, because what they're doing is saying, oh, there's no, there wouldn't be any trouble here if it wasn't for all these foreigners stirring it up. I mean, it's a classic tactic of, yeah. a, of an in-trouble government, isn't yeah. it? Listen, the other date uh, in, in, uh, intrigues me at the moment, and that's the 25th of uh, January, Eric, because <clears throat> sometime in the next fortnight, fortnight after that date, uh, the former Prime Minister um, uh, Tony Blair is due to appear mm -hmm. before the Iraq inquiry. What do you think? Is he on trial? To some extent, yes. It'll be very interesting to see. In fact, I think it will be a touchstone of the perceived effectiveness of this inquiry mm. as to how how far and in what depth they question Mr Blair mm. and how far they try to get out of him his real uh, 
his real reasons for invading Iraq. And there's going to be real anger because there can only 60 seats in this uh, small hall near They're balloting, aren't they? Yeah, they're balloting for those, but the fathers and mothers of the dead soldiers are saying, well, I mean, why not move the hall for that particular hearing? Stick it out it into the main hall. Privilege. Well, put it on the London Palladium, you know. Yeah, and you, why not? You think it's going to come And I way. think some but clever the, the people... Elizabeth Hall's a, a Yeah, but somebody place. might go and put it on on the 28th. Right. When those other two uh, oh, I conferences see. I see. are on, so and say, oh, round the side, there's a little bit of a sideshow here. So you, you think Tony Blair's going to turn up on the 28th? Uh, I He's mean, only going to do six stuff. hours, and they've already left a gap for lunch. So well, you see, the other thing is that before him, his ex-press secretary, uh, Alistair Campbell, who mm. I think was part author of the so-called dodgy mm. dossier... The man who did the sexing up, yeah. 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 Then we've got Jonathan Powell, who's I think is a bit of a forgotten figure in mm-hmm. the fact that he was a Blair policy one. He's not if you look at Blair's now private activities and his big uh, money that he's, he's involved making. In that, was, he's it? the sidekick there. Okay, yes. but these two guys are the warm-up acts. Yes. And yes. They, well, they are, aren't they? <laughs> yes, and they true. will take a lot of the flack because oh, they yeah. don't mind. And so by that's the what they're there for. That, yeah. By the time Mr. Blair gets mm. on then it's, it's going to be quite... No, I don't think these parents are going to let that get away. Look, there was already a father who refused publicly to share Shake Blair's hand and said, you have the blood of my son on it. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of quite w- anger worse than we've expected because you can't do anything about a, a bereaved parent in the same way you can some sort of demonstrator against the G20 meeting or something. They're going to, I think, face a, a real anger, and I don't think Blair's going to be let off the hook, whatever tricks they get up to presentationally. Do we, um, do we see that this is going to be the end of it, uh, Eric? I mean, this isn't what people... People have been waiting for the Blair... Appearance. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the whole inquiry, I mean, it depends very much. I mean, the, the, the jury is still out, <laughs> one could say that. The whole inquiry is, is a big test, really, of whether the thing is going to be closed or not. I mean, I, have, I still have high hopes for this inquiry. Perhaps I'm being naive. No, I think a lot more's. No, but a lot more's come out of it already right. than people have predicted by the character. What is missing, though, I think Eric would agree, is a really st- perhaps he should be on it. A strong mm-hmm. questioner. They're not putting up a very good show. And somebody said uh, Blair isn't, Rod uh, Lyons, isn't uh, going to be Roderick Lyne. He's quite quite tough. Yeah, but he seems some... to know the answers before we. But somebody said Blair isn't going to be grilled. He's going to be lightly poached. Uh, and that's uh, I'm perhaps, afraid what perhaps. might happen. But much is going to hang on this, as I said. I mean, I think this is the big touchstone of how effective the inquiry is going to be. Can I ask you just one other thing, which is, um, it, it, it seems that we have started the election campaign, mm-hmm. right? Um, in British sort of, uh, I was going to say, terms of democracy, this is enormously important. But I sense already this week with people saying this is going to go on till May. No, I think you you may have said that earlier when we were thinking about the grounds of this programme, but since the new plot against Brown which uh, has fizzled, emerged, it's it fizzled. may have fizzled, but it's set, you know, cats on pigeon. I mean, the, I, uh, and I, it's I, certainly added, it's not going to be a, a polite election. I don't think it's going to be dull either. Yeah, but we've got to live with it for the next... I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking, yeah. all the things that are going on, all the things we lined up uh, that, that we heard earlier... Uh, from Jamie Gordon, the, the things that have been sparking, sparking this year, mm. um, the considerations of the of, of, of the economy, of Yemen, of counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. everything that's happening, 
and yet the yeah. election seems insignificant. And that's into a society, a society which actually says, you pick up our ways of democracy and you'll be a better government. You can't, for example, in, in Yemen, sort of try to unload our democracy in Lemon. This, this guy has mm. been there for 31 years mm. running uh, Yemen. I mean, he says, you know, how long you people survive? Yeah, but you think you're going to have a long election campaign here, but in America, they've already started on the next Well, one. I was going to say, in fact, you, you could say that this is an index of the Americanization of British politics, because now we have a very long election campaign coming up, perhaps fortuitously, because normally governments don't last the entire five, five, five years. Mm. But, he, but, the, but, but the way, in fact, this is a very presidential type of campaign. It, it, is, it, is, it is Brown versus Cameron. Yeah. And, and, and we're getting the one on... the. Yeah. the two-on-three or one-on-one TV programme. So it'll be, we are getting more and more Americanized. OK, we are late. It is coming up to uh, 37 minutes after the hour. Um, you're listening to Sit Rep from BFBS Radio 2 with me, Christopher Lee. Uh, still with me in the studio, the Director for the Centre for Defence and Security Studies, International Studies at the University of Salford, Professor Eric Grove, and uh, from Global Radio News, Christopher Walker. Now, earlier... We were talking about religion and the inability of many Western societies and their agencies to understand religious obligations and the societies they influence, if not govern. If we can't get that far, how do we understand radicals, or more uh, importantly, radicalisation? And if you do understand it, what can you do to counter it? Now, Owen Bennett-Jones of the BBC World Service is on the line at the moment, and you... I've been listening to some of your stuff in the World Service. You've been studying the idea of jihadi or jihad, uh, um, what's it called, rehab, especially in Saudi Arabia. That sounds a fascinating study. What's going on there? Jihad rehab, yeah. The, the idea is that people, not only from Guantanamo, but uh, those from Guantanamo and some others, Saudis, go through a program. There's a center very well financed just outside of Riyadh. And uh, they do a couple of months there, minimum. And the idea is basically to get religious re-education. And, of course, it's not possible to persuade these young men that, for example, the American invasion of Iraq was justified. They will never think that. But it is possible to persuade them that it is not their responsibility to take an individual decision to resist it, that that should lie with their government and their Islamic uh, scholars. So the, the, the thrust of these uh, re, jihad rehab courses, and the, you know, there are similar efforts elsewhere, is basically to say to these guys, look, uh, this is not your call, and you should carry on with your life, you should get a job, you should marry, and you should uh, settle down. And if the government needs you to fight, the government will let you know. Otherwise, just don't do it. Well, the other part I heard you talking about was the fact that a, a, a lot of these guys that have got, got involved they sort of slipped into it. They said, yeah, that seems a pretty good idea. I'm going off to be uh, a radical. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Guantanamo, you know, former Guantanamo detainees now in, uh, in, in Pakistan, in Yemen, and in Saudi. And for what it's worth, and of course I'm only meeting the ones who'll meet me, mm. uh, they, they do sort of slip into it a bit. I mean, I'll give you one example. There's one guy, a Saudi, who'd gone to fight in Iraq, and he had seen those pictures, you probably remember them, of, of a Marine shooting a wounded man in a mosque in Fallujah. The, the, the pictures made a big uh, splash around the world. Right. And, and he was appalled, and he just said, he flipped, and he just said, I'm not going to put up with that, I'm going to go and fight. And so, sort of, in the course of one evening watching telly, 
he, he suddenly found himself on the way to Iraq, and he never actually made it. He, he, he got uh, caught before he got across the border. But that was his plan, to, to, to go and fight. And it was, you know, quite, as I say, quite casually taken decision. Tell me about uh, suggesting they ought to get married. I know they're giving them quite a lot of money. Was it $36,000 or, or, or whatever? Uh, why marriage? Well, this is, this is something that goes back a long way, actually. Uh, from what I can work out, this was done by the Palestinians way back when, if you remember that Olympic uh, killing in Germany, when these, the, the, the Israeli athletes got killed, and uh, the Palestinian leadership were thinking, what on earth are we going to do with these guys who, who'd, who'd managed that, that, that uh, whole operation? How are we going to demobilize them? And one of the ideas then was to get them married. And I've come across it in, in Pakistan, too, where when they were trying to demobilize some of these Kashmiri fighters, they were offering, I met some of these guys down in a pool hole in, in Ralpindi, and they, they were basically been given, actually, funny enough, they never got the money because their, their, their militant leaders sort of you know, nicked it, but they, they, they were meant to get $800 for demobilizing, and another 800 if they got married, and the Saudis are very keen on this element of the program. The guy who runs it says that a wife is the best control, <laughs> that's what he said, and uh, they offer them $33,000 or so, that was the exchange rate when, when I was there, for getting married. And they'll even help find a wife. And they say it works, and it helps give these young men a different idea, a different thing to think about, get a family, and to just calm down. When, um, when President Musharraf in Pakistan tried this, uh, in, in a modest version, wasn't it? It was $800 or whatever, but there's a balance of economies here. Um, when he tried it uh, over Kashmir, did it work? Well, it did work with some of the smaller groups, but I don't think he ever tried to tackle Lashkar Toiba or, or Jason Mohammed. You know, these really big groups because they're so well financed. There's no way he can compete. But with some of these smaller ones, you know, these are the, the group that may have had some sort of military you know, backing over the years, and just not very many people. A local Kashmiri leader who's managed to squeeze some money out of the ISI over the years to run operations in Kashmir and quite controllable. Then yeah, he can, and he, he can. Uh, I mean, these these people I've met had stopped, and they, they, yeah, there were camps for demobilization of these fighters and, and you know, they were getting money and grants to try and basically reintegrate them into civilian life. So it, I think it did work, but it couldn't work for the whole movement because if you take the very big organizations you know, they, they've got tons of money and they can pay their fighters lots to fight or just to sit and wait. Yeah, and $33,000 or $36,000 is nothing to another organization with tons of money and that is Saudi Arabia. Sure, I mean, as far as I can say, you know, I mean, there are very big moral dilemmas, and I, I don't think any democratic government could do this sort of thing. I mean, there's one chap I met who had basically blown up the Jordanian embassy in Baghdad, and, and what had happened is he'd, he'd set himself alight and, and, and jumped out of the cab, maybe having second thoughts, uh, but the cab had blown up. He actually didn't die. He was very badly burned, but uh, he killed nine people in that attack. Now, you know, many people would say that he should be in jail. In fact, he's in this program. And if he was able to find a wife or get that organized, he would get the payoff. And, you know, and I put it to him that he should be in jail, really. And, uh, you know, that's not how the Saudis see it. They, they say that these people need to be re-educated. They need to work out they made a mistake. And they need to uh, get back into normal life. And that's what they're going to help them do. I mean, Bennett Jones, thank you very much for joining us. Eric, uh, Christopher Walker, this is...
It, it is a remarkable story, isn't it? I it mean, is. it's, it's the other way of counterinsurgency. It's very constructive, it seems to me. I mean, these people are doing things. I mean, they aren't doing it for normal criminal motives. They may be engaged in criminal activities, but they're doing it for a politico-religious motive. And, and, you know, and, and one can argue... Or they just slipped into it, as, as Owen Bennett Jones says. That's right. Or, mm. well, well, I mean, or, or they, they see something on TV that shocks them, so they think, right, you know, mm. we'll go off and do something. A couple of graduates of this scheme, of course, have already uh, been pushed in Yemen as members of the new Al... That is the uh, problem. Kaida group there. Yeah. Now, they're well trained, obviously. The other thing is that it strikes me, it is a, a fascinating idea, but I remember in, in uh, Palestine or we- occupied West Bank a meeting, you know, quite a lot of families of suicide bombers. One thing is quite a lot of them are women these days. They're not mm-hmm. just males. You know, there are plenty of women suicide bombers, as there were, you know, going back bombers at the time of the Algerian War and that famous. Mm film. The other thing is that I found, I mean, this is just personal experience, so you can't really count it, that the usual thing that had radicalised, I remember one girl, she was a graduate, there were She'd blown herself up. There were pictures in her house of her and her mortarboard and all this. She got super exams. But her brother had been captured by the Israelis and had allegedly tortured in prison. And usually you found, when you dug into it, that it was something had happened to relatives of the people who became... Because suicide bombing, I mean, it's suicide bombing. They're not expected to come out of it uh, alive. They don't run away. I mean, Owen might be right about that one incident where the chap did get cold feet. But on the whole, they were pretty well uh, trained up you know, not to get cold feet. Like the guy who hit um, uh, Camp Chapman and hit and, and, and blew up seven CIA... Yes. Uh, operatives. Yeah, and the new frightening thing was the one in Saudi Arabia who it doesn't get much publicised. Who nearly killed the interior minister yeah. because he had the uh, explosives inside his own body detonated by a mobile phone. Uh, so text. they are literally blowing themselves up. Yeah, which is the next. Yeah. Okay. Listen. Uh, listening to that, Talal Rajab from uh, Quilliam, which I, as far as I know. Um, um, that is, you're the only think tank, aren't you, founded to look at this sort of very subject of radicalisation? Well, we are the first counter-extremism think tank um, based in the UK. There are a couple of other organisations that are now working on this issue, but um, I'm happy to say we were the first one um, back in 2008 that was launched to specifically counter radicalisation, yes. Tell me, tell me, just for definitions, what is radicalisation in the context that you look at it? We look at it purely as a political phenomena. So um, we talk about radicalization more as a process from somebody adopting uh, and having more mainstream uh, views and then being pushed to one side of the spectrum, either to the far left or the far right, or in the case that we work on specifically, um, uh, Islamist radicalization. So it's more of a, more of a process uh, and, and a traveling um, you know, and, and a movement from a mainstream opinion to one that is more extreme. Has there been enough work done so far to be able to say, in general terms, this is what produces a radical? Um, There have been lots of studies uh, recently, lots of academic studies as well, and I don't think many of them have really pinpointed it correctly. There is no one definition or one reason why somebody may adopt uh, this Islamist ideology. There are a variety of reasons, uh, reasons from economic deprivation, from social alienation, uh, maybe anger at a political event or, uh, you know, um, or even a, a personal crisis where something happens at the home and it leads them 
um, to seek other avenues and uh, you know other movements, other ideologies, and they get pushed into one kind of group, uh, be it far right or even um, Islamism. How is it that that I think it's general general assumption that Western um, Western governments, Western agencies, are so far behind in understanding um, and the fact that you have to be the first think tank to come to this. Yeah, but what, what we found, I mean, um, I'm a trainer at Quilliam, so we do a lot of training programs uh, with public sector workers, and what I have found is that there's a, a massive lack of knowledge on this area. Um, can you, can I just like, interrupt you? Tell, uh, uh, when yeah. you say public sector workers, what sort of people? So our training programs uh, cover teachers, police officers, uh, youth workers, council workers, uh, a, a wide variety of professions um, mm. who, who actually work in, um, in, within Muslim communities or on the Preventing Violent Extremism program. And when you get to the point of saying to people, what is it that you understand? How do you identify um, a, a, a potential radical? How can you, how yeah. can you describe that? Um, what we have is a, a, an identifier, a four-point identifier um, of what um, Islamist uh, extremism is based on. And what we state is that one of the first beliefs, and probably the core belief, is that they see Islam not as a faith like any other faith, but they see it as, see it as a political ideology. So rather than comparing Islam to Christianity or Judaism, Islamist extremists will compare Islam to communism or capitalism, and believe that within Islam you can have a complete political social structure that has to be implemented and, in fact, enforced on all societies. And until that happens, then they declare war on that society. And that's probably the main key um, distinction between a, a conservative Muslim, so to say, and, and an Islamist. Because this is a key point, isn't it? I mean, the, it, radicalism is not against one state, is it? I mean, it may be no. against individual states, but it's not just one. It's, I don't suppose you mentioned communism. I'm not sure that since communism we've had a radical terrorist pandemic. Um, no, we, we, we haven't really, but this, I mean, this ideology is slightly different from communism in that it, it's based on, it, they, they believe that it's based on religious values and religious texts, mm. so they see justification within the religion, whereas the vast majority of Muslims would not see justification in the religion for these acts. These individuals can point to a verse in the Quran or a, or a saying of the Prophet Muhammad and say, well, that justifies my action and therefore um, what I'm about to do is legitimate, Islamically. Mm. Talal Rajab, thank you very much for joining us indeed. It, it gets more interesting, isn't it, Christopher Walker, mm. this whole thing. We're getting away from uh, how many aircraft do we need, how many helicopters we need, etc. What we need is, is not simply understanding, not necessarily jihadi rehab programs, but something much deeper, because what we're doing at the moment is having great difficulty in working. Well, it's penetration. Uh, that's the intel. I mean, the Israelis have always had a reputation for having a very, very hot intelligence organization in Mossad. But if you follow individual cases, it's often because Israelis are from all different countries. They're Jewish. Mm. So you had a chap called Cohen who used to set up in Damascus. Mm. I mean, he was uh, an Arab. You know, they could infiltrate immediately. But you can't get a guy who's born in Florida, you know, and healthy hamburger eater, and then say, God, go and dress up as a Muslim yeah. uh, and prove you were not. And it's quite difficult to anybody who's read and studied Islam 
not to see that there is uh, an argument in it for a creation of a caliphate and such like. So this word moderate and radical is quite difficult to understand. Uh, you know, going some people. But the trouble is, without those words, we understand nothing. No, but I mean, we're tending to, aren't we? Uh, you're quite right. People should be focusing on uh, Islam uh, these days, and as you say, worrying about how people get radicalized. But it's a matter of mm. interpretation within the religion. I mean, the, if you yeah. wanted to, you could interpret Christianity in exactly the same way. We the have crusaders done since the Crusades, did, yes, uh, and and so on. And um, a friend of mine, uh, a fellow naval specialist called Norman Friedman, always says in the in the talks he gives on international affairs in general that he, that he compares what's happening in the Islamic world and has been happening over the last twenty years to the Christian Reformation. That, you, that, that that kind of process is going on, mm. where you're getting new radical movements, mm. some of whom remember the Anabaptists in, in the 16th yeah. century, extremely <laughs> radical um, and violent, and, and, and that... The, the, I, I hope he doesn't well, deliver... There seems to be, but there seems to be a process going on well, Sean in, Brady the, in was, the Islamic countries. Sean Brady was saying earlier, wasn't he, anybody might have missed it, but should, mm. you can listen again if you just go to sort of bfbs.com forward slash sitrep, hear what Sean Brady said. Um, he was saying that in the United Kingdom, for example, there is a huge history for the past 200 years mm. of, of, of religious radicalism. Mm. I wonder, do you remember in 1946, was it, Eric, when George Kennan came out with this idea of containment? Well, he said, telegram, yes. Yes. Mm. I mean, he, he, he basically said, um, you know, communism, you're not going to be able to beat it necessarily with guns. So what you've got to do is contain it. Exactly, yes. And it, it, mm. it, I, it, it just seems that we're yeah. starting to come round. David Petraeus, General mm. David Petraeus, has been thinking aloud on these Well, lines. I think one thing we haven't noticed, for instance, in Egypt, most of the mosques have been taken over by the state, and the, the imams are made to preach almost a straight line. Whereas in Yemen, one of the main problems that Hazir didn't have time to get round to is that there are 4,000 mosques and uh, religious schools that are completely independent of no state control whatsoever. And that's where you get the radicalization going on. In Egypt, I mean, they do preach almost the same sermon. Uh, you know, government approve and sanitize in those mosques. Mm. But then these people will seek some other sort of place to uh, that worship. It, that makes it very like the Reformation, doesn't it? With, shall we say, an established religion and these radicals underneath. Yes. Exactly. But I hope your uh, colleague doesn't deliver his uh, lectures in Tehran about the similarities with Christianity. I don't think he goes to Tehran. No. No. I, I couldn't no, no, get him no. to go to Russia back in the, in the late well, 80s. Well, I don't think... Well, one thing we didn't say about communism Iran. was, of course, they have... No, no, know, no, this is Norman Friedman. Mm. Oh, Norman Friedman. Yeah. The Russians, I mean, I know that Putin's no longer a communist, but, I mean, they're fighting the Muslims in Chechnya and such like with the same intensity that we are fighting them over here, and Putin likes nothing more. And Dagestan. Yeah. Look at the killing yesterday, blowing up yesterday. Yes, uh, six dead suicide, or seven dead. Suicide bombers. Mm. Listen, um, something else I want to talk about. Um, it was a private dinner at, uh, in uh, St. James's last night. An interesting bunch of people there. And it included, Eric, mm -hmm. uh, as I think you'd know, included the chief of the general staff. Mm -hmm. Who was up in Salford recently as well. Yes. Great. Well, it's a bit of a difference, actually. The food's probably better in Salford than it is in St. James's. Anyway, it was quite a bunch of these people, including some Americans from the uh, State Department, Pentagon, etc. General Richards was saying, sort of, mm, sort of about you, I'm actually brassed off. I've been in the job since the autumn. The government hasn't got a sense of strategic 
understanding. You know, the debate is about how many helicopters, how many tanks, or how much Frez, future of Frez, etc., etc. But the debate is much bigger. It is the debate is about Britain's place in the world next 30 years. Exactly. And if he's thinking that way, a lot of other people must be. Well, I think in a sense, twas ever thus that you know the 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 the, the time horizon in normal politics. You don't is pretty, think he's is pretty worrying short. aloud for nothing? Oh, no, I think he's I think he's worrying aloud at the moment because we're entering, as we've said already, an election campaign. Mm. The time horizon basically is May, mm. and all and, and and after that, all bets are off. Then we're going to have a strategic defence review, which in which hopefully we will start thinking in the longer term. Mm. But certainly in the meantime, but a strategic like, defence review has got to really strategic. decide. It's got to yeah. Mm. Well, that's what he. He's saying, or, or so mm. the people at this dinner heard or, or got the sense mm. that he's saying, that the government is not thinking strategically. And when you think that strategically, no, the government... you don't talk about hardware, you talk about what is your role in the world for the next Look, the government's years. thinking about who's going to vote for which party in May at the latest, as Eric said. They're, they're absolutely obsessed by, you know, media campaigns about lack of weapons, you've got our heroes in the sun mm. and such like. You can't, where they should be doing this long-term thinking is at these sort of private Wilton Park or places yeah. where people weave for the weekend privately. But I hear the previous CGS, General Dannett, is mm. now thinking aloud about the morality of war. You know, we want yeah. somebody to think about strategic understanding uh, rather than sort well, of... General Dannett's always been mm. like that. He's very keen... Talking about religion, General mm. Dannett is a very keen evangelical Anglican. But he's joining the Tories anyway. He's joining the Tories, uh, yes. Well, he but thinks he is. Yeah. He yeah. But, but, uh, think, but Sorry, I was sorry, just going to say, isn't there David a place Cameron's like... having second thoughts. Did you know that? Uh, something else picked up from uh, last night. But a place like Rusi, you often have uh, the, the boss here speaking, Michael. Mm. Um, should, I mean, they should be thinking all the time about these things. Well, they things, are trying, and they've yeah. had things on, on strategy and so on. Oh, tell, talk about trying. I mean, we mentioned earlier uh, <coughs> uh, the, 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 the guest appearance of uh, Tony Blair for six hours, anyway, at the, uh, the Iraq inquiry. And I'm just wondering, you know... Um, is he going to get a fair hearing? I mean, he's almost condemned. I mean, this is a, it's a sort of the sort of thing that you, you, you just wonder about. It's very easy to say, well, Tony Blair is on trial, etc. But, you know... It, no, he's he fairly to, clever. He he's, already to given, by himself. he's already given an interview to Fern Britton, one of our Lady Lady interviewers, in which he sort of set the stage... That was a hard day out, wasn't it? Yeah, but it set the stage. If you don't think he gave that inadvertently and made those remarks... He's getting, he's getting there. He's yeah, but I'm just coming back to this whole thing about the way we all gather around, the media gather around, etc. Tony Blair is considered guilty until proved innocent. But Tony Blair loves it because Tony Blair knows he's right. He doesn't think he's right. Mm. That's what made him such a terribly mm. dangerous prime minister. Mm. I mean, he, he has no doubts at all. No doubts at all. He's like a historian. Mm. No, historians can see through guys like that on the whole. Yes. I did at the time as well. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, if, he, then, yeah. if he has any doubts, he rings up his old friend, ex-president number 43, Bush, and uh, Bush said, absolutely, Tony, you always said you had it right. Yeah, and he also said to him, that if you can't make it, don't turn up. Listen, there's something else I'm bothered about. Today is the 7th of January, 2010. Or would you prefer 2010 or even 2010? I mean, historically, I mean, it doesn't really matter, does it? I like 2010. I like 2010, and I'm rather pleased we're out of these zeros because I could never decide whether it was 2006 or 2006 or something. But we have to be careful about decades, remember. There was Ooh. no year zero. Yeah. There was no year zero of Not the Christian era. It went from Christian, 1 yeah. BC yes, to okay. 1 AD. Right, come CE, on, that's getting complicated. What do you like? Uh, 
I, don't, I, I, I agree might. with you in a way about 2010, but the trouble is it reminds me of that phrase that's crept into all languages now, 24-7. Uh, but you see, when we... I'm, I'm thinking, quick, as a historian, because you've only got a few seconds. Yes. Uh, when we come into these great dates, 1066, 1588, 1603, right. uh, 1805, 1914, 18, they do matter the way they're yes, said. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I, and I find 2010 snappy, and I think we need snappy ways. Of well, yeah, I agree. It's much as snappy as I Let's be snappy. Um, we have got uh, 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 quite a stormy year ahead of us, so yeah. 2010, let's remember. The other thing is, I think this is wonderful... Scientists in Nebraska, Nebraska, where is Nebraska, are trying to work out how the brain works out time, whether it's 2010, whether it's 1588, or whatever it is. It puts on a we record. don't know. We don't know how the brain works out time. Uh, that's it, we're going. Uh, Christopher Walker, Hajir Darling Kent, Eric Grove, thank you very much indeed. Uh, until next week, I'm Christopher Lee. Guess what? Mary's in the hut. <laughs>